Hello, welcome to The Mag Life, episode number 172. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Shaw, and I'm here with Varg Freeborn. How you doing, Varg? Pretty good. How about you, Daniel? I'm doing pretty good. We have a guest today that is uh, a friend of mine. We met a few years ago, and I had heard about her a little bit before that, and I was admittedly a bit of a skeptic, skeptic of the things that I had been hearing. And then I met her and I wasn't sure. And then I spent some more time with her and spent some time on the range uh, and then some time on the range again. And eventually somewhere along that path, I was convinced that everything I heard good about her was true. She is a credit to the farms industry and always has a good insight. One of the hardest workers I've ever seen on the range, Corinne Mosier. How you doing, Corinne? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for having me, Varg. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you too. You know, everybody out there that may not know who you are, uh, who are you and, and what do you do? I'm a firearms instructor in Kansas. That's where I'm based out of. Um, I started teaching in 2012 and I started competing in 2014. And uh, IDPA was the first uh, competition discipline that I tried. Moving on to three gun USPSA up to the tactical games recently. Um, my background is actually music. I'm a classically trained musician. So I was raised by Marines trained by police officers, very fortunate to have worked under, as a student, under some of the finest uh, firearms instructors, uh, in my opinion, in the world, yourself included, talking to different instructors with different ideas. Um, I'm a perpetual student first. I love passing on knowledge. I was uh, the director of education at Center Fire Shooting Sports in Olathe, Kansas, and I headed the women's program, which is uh, a ton of fun where my true passion lies is passing on uh, firearm skills to beginners. Beginners are the best. So um, firearms instructor, mom, Ellie wife, and uh, musician. So what, what got you started in this? Like, why did you go from you just, just growing up and just kind of transition into it? I mean, you went from playing violins to, uh, to shooting guns. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a slow transition. I was a reluctant firearms student myself. Uh, my very first formal class was a concealed carry class, which in Kansas is eight hours. There's a shooting qualification portion. And um, prior to that, my mindset, I mean, was completely different. Uh, as somebody who had never really even shot guns before, thought of them as just props and movies and things that bad guys had and, and good guys, cops, but that's about it. Um, I didn't really see the need for, I did not, I remember clearly not seeing the need for regular citizens to carry guns around with them. I thought of the archetype of that kind of person was kind of uh, backwards in my mind, you know, just paranoid. I think I would use the, the P word paranoid. And especially for women, I, I, I felt like a woman who carried a gun all, all just every day was constantly thinking the worst of people, thinking that everybody was out to get them and that that would be the way that they treated people in their everyday life. They wouldn't be kind, generous hearted people. Um, and this, I mean, I don't think I've ever really been that honest before about what I thought prior to beginning my firearms and mindset education. That's where I was at that time. I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, but my late husband, Mike really, really was passionate about me at least beginning to get the basics of firearm and self-defense knowledge. So he pushed me physically into a concealed carry class. And um, I got the crap scared out of me um, because of the weight of the responsibility of being a gun owner and walking around with a gun every day, how complicated it really is to do it the right way, how you can do everything right, 
and then still get yourself in uh, legal, moral, financial trouble for the rest of your life. And yet weighing the opposite, which is the need to have it. And, you know, what do you do this balance of what are my needs and what am I willing to risk? What am I willing to compromise, uh, you know, for my safety or am I not willing to compromise and take on all of this responsibility? So it was like overwhelming. However, I discovered, I mean, I am a good student in pretty much anything that I do. I love learning. So I jumped into, you know, really wanting to know the shooting portion, at least the skill set there, how to do it correctly. I was not interested in just working it out, figuring it out on my own and having anybody take me to the range. I wanted to know how to do it well. Um, and so I had, as most beginners do, especially women, um, I had success in the beginning and I took it from there. Uh, Mike was extremely supportive. I took as much training courses, as many training courses as I could with the intent of us teaching firearms training together, which we did end up doing for many years um, with our firearms uh, training company, Tactical Simulation Solutions, which is no longer operating. But uh, we did that together. My career took off when I was hired straight out of an NRA instructor certification course by the owners of a range here in Olathe, Kansas. And I, at the time was like, there's no way I don't know anything. I don't know enough. That's not true. I knew enough. Um, but once I jumped into that role, I became basically the understudy, the shadow of our primary instructor, Rick Staples. And I took every course he had, he, he, he gave every tactical class. Every time he gave it, I became the range rat. I, I swept the floors in the back of the range. I ran and got this tape. I got whatever I could do because I became a sponge because I became addicted to uh, to learning basically the craft, uh, gun craft, if you will, um, firearm handling. It just make a lot. It made a lot of sense, and it built my confidence confidence to use the gun, confidence to carry the gun, confidence not to to use the gun if I if that wasn't appropriate. Um, so that's how I got into it. And I just kept on learning and taking as many courses as I could, um, until on the tactical side, I was able to teach side by side and take over our rifle, pistol, shotgun classes. And then really the competition side took off. You walked right up to something right there that, that Varg and I talk about a lot and really try to get across to people through this podcast and, and other ways. And, and when we're teaching the complications that surround use of force, particularly with a firearm where a lot of folks out there may think that, oh, you know, it's going to be like that, wah, 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 like standing there right in front of me. I, I have my gun pointed. It's me and that bad guy, for, forward, frontal-facing bad guy, uh, no limited exposure, no nothing, uh, just stand there, shoot, and it's over. Not considering crowds of people, movement through crowds, uh, gun, uh, weapons orientation, muzzle, all the different things that can happen and how fast things happen and, and our responsibility in those situations and how actually complex that is. And the easy part ends up being the shooting part. The hard part is everything surrounding that. So in your experience and, and you know, you're the way you teach and, and what you've, you've seen and what really helped you recognize that, that you need more training and, and to put in more work and not just more training for yourself, but you were then an instructor. So you had a responsibility to be as right as you possibly could be for your students. What do you see those complications being that we need to be aware of and be good at and, and understand? Two things. The first thing is that you said the shooting part portion is the easiest part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why we take the time to practice our physical manipulation skills and our marksmanship skills so that we can, we don't have to focus our brain power on that anymore. That's going to be an automated response. Um, as far as once, once we go, we say, go, 
and the gun's out and we're working at that point, our brain and our eyes are doing other things, the rest of our senses. I think some complications are that we need to believe that we can be in a situation that we in in a sense are not prepared for because we've never been in that situation before. There's no such thing as, as a template for a use of force scenario. There's not a, these will be the indicators and this is how it will go down every single time. Um, so there's a lot of brain work going on. So we have to learn what could happen and prepare for what could happen based off of what has happened in the past, knowing that what might happen to you will be different. Maybe similar, but will be different. So you have to take personal responsibility for your education, for developing your mindset to be prepared for any scenario based off of what has happened in the past. So that's why every time there's a use of force situation, which hopefully wasn't your own, you need to pick up on the the learning points from that every single time. Otherwise, you're being irresponsible. Most learning does not happen on the range. It can't. That's just perfecting that automated response, but your true education needs to come from reading books, you know, like Barg's book, Violence of Mind, from reading and watching surveillance videos from police videos, uh, surveillance from, you know, uh, civilian shootings or uses of force, especially the ones that didn't escalate towards violence. So, you know, the complications, the fact that it's, there's no template, you're, you're learning to be prepared for something that you know, it, it, you're not going to know exactly what it will look like. So I've got a question coming off of that. Mm-hmm. Your mindset sounds, you know, extremely squared away. And what I'm curious about is, have you uh, ventured into force on force training and how much of that have you been doing? I have gone there. I have done it a few times for myself as a student and then participated as an adjunct instructor and they have been classes where, you know, we're using um, airsoft guns, uh, shock knives, hand-to-hand stuff, or just no weapons at all. Force-on-force training is one of those things that it can be extremely, I mean, it is, it is extremely valuable in the right amounts done the right way. You can overdo it. You can underdo it. You can have instructors and students that aren't participating in the proper way and ruin the entire experience. You can be detraining yourself or it can absolutely put a shock to your system that changes you completely. And you, and what's scare and, and usually it scares people. It, it makes them think, Oh, I thought I makes them realize I thought that if this happened to me, you know, X, Y, Z, I would do this ABC move and it would work every time force on force forces you to be there, not only physically, but verbally, emotionally, um, with tools that you figure out exactly what your skill level is under stress. It is artificial stress, but just like competition is artificial stress, it's still a degree of stress because there's performance anxiety. There's sometimes environmental factors um, that limit your uh, ability to perform at your highest ability. And um, it, so, so force on force training, I would, I, I think everybody on earth, especially concealed carry people should go to some kind of really good force on force training. Um, but the problem that sometimes I see is that people overdo it. They're constantly going they're, they're running the same scenario over and over and over and over and over. I don't think you should run the same scenario more than once. 
um, because at that point it becomes a, a video game or a laser tag and you don't take it seriously anymore. So I don't know if you guys have found the same thing or what you th- your, your thoughts on are on force on force. Absolutely a wonderful thing, but you have to, you have to be careful that it is only done correctly. And even then it's not real life. It's about having a good instructor and you know, a good, a good plan and actually creating the right environment, the right situation and uh, not letting it turn into paintball or something else stupid, but you know, done yeah. properly, it's hard to find more realistic, challenging training out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've gravitated over the years to teaching more and more force on force. It's where I believe I had the most value at. Um, but I think one of the things that I've seen is that you have some people presiding over force on force or putting together force on force classes. And there's not a lot of like real applicable fight experience guiding the learning objectives of those classes. And I think that's where you get into the problems where, you know, she's talking about it's, uh, you know, not having clear learning objectives and then switching those with enough variables to make sure that there's a unique experience every time. But I just, uh, it's just interesting to me because it, it sounds like everything that you talk about with your mindset and the, and the whole transition that took place from being somebody that was not necessarily anti-gun, but couldn't understand really what the purpose was. And then all the way to this and seeing, you know, how somebody makes that, that journey, right? Like how you lay that out. And then in the end, you, you end up doing things like force on force training and getting into fights and probably doing like a little bit of sparring or hands-on stuff and things like that. Say the hands-on things, how valuable do you think that is, especially for women to get out there and feel like what it's like to go primal? Because I do a certain thing in one of my classes and I have, you know, I have opinions about that based on what I see as a man, but how do you feel about women out there that have never had a chance to actually punch somebody or feel what that is actually like to actually give somebody your all in, in, in an attack, uh, counterattack situation. For women, you're going to have to break an emotional barrier before they, you can, uh, and I, I am speaking generally, of course, not all women are the same, not all men are the same, but you're going to, you're going to have to break an emotional barrier with a woman, um, in order for her to just get cat crazy. I mean, get that physical, I mean, you know, where you're trying to hurt somebody, but even then you can't in, in training because you're still not going to, you're not trying if I were to train with you, Varg, you're not going to actually try to break me. You can't, you can't, you, you couldn't, you're not going to try to put me in the hospital. Mm. That's a problem because if you were a bad guy, that's exactly what you'd be trying to do. You would be trying to break me. You'd be trying to hurt me. So it's your job as my training partner to make it as realistic as possible to teach me something, not to necessarily scare me, but to teach me something. And for women, what they need to be taught about the physical hands-on stuff is there's always the umbrella mindset of I will win. I will fight. I will, I will be covered in his blood. I will, I will poke and scratch and bite and break everything. There's no mercy. I can get out of this, but then you need to go to force on force hands-on training so that you can realize just what disparity of force means, why there are weight classes in sport fighting, because I, I can embrace technique and I can be the best, most badass female fighter on earth, but Varg, you outweigh me. Your, your body is put together and assembled differently than mine. Your bones are denser. You are, you are built as a, as a, as a hunter, not the prey. 
okay, so I can be as strong as as physically active, as physically fit and technically perfect as I want to be. And what sparring with you as my partner is going to teach me is that I don't want to get touched in a fight. I need to learn how to do everything in my power to not let you get too close to me because I can fight you, but the chances of me overpowering you or winning even if you were unskilled you're, and, and all you had was your strength as a man and your weight as a man, that's bad for me. I, want, I don't want to be in that situation. What fighting with you should teach me is that I don't want to fight men, okay? Um, so I will embrace the technique, which is really what I got passionate about is I realized what my limitations were, but what my strengths were. What competition taught me is that I can be on the same playing field as men And I can win, not because I'm faster. I am slower. I am slower, but I am more accurate. I'm more technically perfect. I can run my gun. I can keep it running. And I can, you know, use that finesse and cut time. And I'm not losing time in certain areas where they are. And that's why I can win. And you can apply that same thing to to fighting as well. So challenges with women, yes, they need to go to self-defense classes. But I hate anybody. And I know it's a strong statement. I hate anybody who teaches women to that it's it that if they stand in front of somebody and do these eye gouges or pokes or oh like that's going to be good enough or that empowers them that's not empowering. So I mean it, it's rough what we should be teaching women is that you know they are they'll win they'll fight they'll be nasty be mean nasty break don't don't hit break breakthrough but then do everything you can to avoid being in that situation because everybody's going to hospital. If that happens. That's interesting because that's, you know, being someone who's been in, in lots of fights and several lethal force confrontations, disparity of force is the first thing that I present to any hands-on class that I have, especially women. Uh, Because what I dislike as passionately as you do is when I see these classes where they put these, you know, women or anybody and there's this, it's just this pre planned moves, pre planned counterattacks, and there's lots of giggling and it's fun. And, and I'm just like that, you know, first of all, your body doesn't have the conditioning and the strength to even perform that right. Like against someone that's like creating force against you, taking into consideration weight and strength and power and speed and all those things that are required to perform, you know, effective fighting moves. And then understanding that, that emotional barrier, breaking that, like, as you describe it, and then coming through to this primal side, right? The primal, the primal violence of a woman, which we all know is there. And you just have to open it up. And then when you get that opened up and it's, it's that, you know, I will win attitude that happens or mindset that's when you see a dramatic change in how they understand things. And it's something where you're, you're not trying to sit there and have a chess match of a fight. You're trying to get away. You know, you're trying to, you're trying to get yourself to a safer place and you just have to fight your way there. Right. Um, And this thing about, you know, squaring up and and doing these moves and things like that is um, it's tremendously bad advice. Uh, and I, and I, it's nice to hear, uh, a woman saying that because 
uh, there's not enough female instructors out there that are actually talking about this type of thing. And that's something I wish that there was filling that gap. Mm-hmm. One thing about Corinne, and we'll shift gears here just a little bit. I invited Corinne. Was it the first two days was a handgun class or the first two days was patrol rifle problem solver. And then we did two days of handgun, right? Yeah, I think, I think handgun right? was second. Yeah. Cause we, she, yeah. she came to my patrol rifle problem solver class, invited her to come down. She, she took me up on it. And then after that class, she was like, hey, can I stay and do the two days of handgun too? And like that was one of the best compliments ever. Corinne is, I, I usually describe her as like one of the, the top five best shooters I've ever seen. And I, I mean that because she's extremely well-rounded. And I, I think there's some natural ability in there. But one of the things about Corinne that I, that I respect the most, and I, I see, I've saw both sides of it because we took a class together where this didn't occur. And then you were in my class and it totally did occur. She comes to the range, she puts her hair up. Her hair is up and she is dressed to throw down on the range and put in work. And patrol rifle problem solver is a pretty tough class. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in there, a lot of thinking, uh, a lot of problem solving, a lot of use of fundamentals in complex situations, uh, a lot of figuring out things as you go, making a little, I call them micro decisions, little small decisions. And she just excelled at everything that we did. And she did not smile. I didn't know. I thought Corinne was pissed off at me for two days straight. And then when the class is over and it's time to debrief, like I, I finished the final drill and I came back and her hair was down and then it was like a different girl was in my class. I was like, who is this, this person back here by the, by all of our, our bags and, and gear and everything else with her hair down because she was smiling and having fun. It was like, there was a complete mindset shift whenever your portion of the class was over. And then, you know, when it started again, the next day for handgun, uh, like you let yourself have this little window of, of being out of the game for a minute. And then you were right back into it the next day, hair up again, no smiles. I think Corinne's pissed off at me again. So I want to, I want to understand your, your mindset a little bit when you step onto the range and you're ready to train and we're, we're kind of what you're thinking whenever you're going out there that day, the first class we we're going to hang out, I guess. Well, I'm just thinking about, um, why I'm there, what the purpose of my time is and your time. Uh, first of all, I want to be respectful to the other students. I want to be respectful of the teacher, uh, no matter who they are, no matter who I'm with. Um, you have something that might save my life in your brain that's going to come out your mouth. And you may not even be telling, saying it to me. You could be talking to somebody four people down. And if I'm not listening, then I'm doing everybody a disservice, including myself and my family. I come to training to stock up on skills, to learn or test the one, what I what I think I know to find what's better. It's like going to church. It's like going to temple. It's like going to the grocery store, you know, or packing up for the winter time, because you don't know how far you're going to have to carry these skill sets until the next time you can get a refresher. I I take it. I take it seriously. I mean, competition is fun. I take it seriously. Um, I do enjoy what I do, but I'm, I'm there to do work um, for myself and my family and, um, and to learn. I'm there to learn. So I guess I didn't realize I, I look so, so pissed off or so serious, but um, it, it's a serious thing. And when, when you talk about how difficult and complicated that specific course was and how like, these little micro decisions you have to make, you have to be tuned in because you're going to learn something that probably wasn't even said. As you're attempting to do something, mm-hmm. you're going to discover a complication, like you said, and figure it out yourself. Well, you never would have learned that just by your regular routine of getting the gun out of the safe bringing it to the range, loading it up, pop, 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 unloading it, cleaning it, putting it away. What are you training for when you're doing that? You're training for what I just described. 
But if you're training to use firearms to fight for your life, you need to go to an in-depth, complicated, difficult, physically challenging. I was tired AF in that class. I was tired and I was beat up and I was bruised and I was breaking and, and you know, I had bruises from head to toe. That's why I was wearing long sleeves and long pants. And boots, You're in phenomenal shape you know, too. Right? You didn't look tired. Oh, well, that's another thing I was concentrating on is not looking tired. It takes a lot of effort. Um, I love to challenge myself in that way because it's not, well, let's see what I can do. It's, it, it, it's like, okay, well, if this was for real, I wouldn't be able to quit when I was tired. You know, don't quit when you're tired. Don't quit when you're frustrated. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't ever quit. I say all the time, be tired, don't look tired. Be cold, don't look (laughs) cold. Be hungry, don't look hungry. Yep. So I I like to push myself to that point because then I can come home. I've learned a lot about myself. Yes, a lot about the guns, but I'm learning about myself when I'm in those classes. Um, And then it also helps me be a better teacher then I can pass on what I know based off of what I've experienced. I'm addicted. I'm a collector of experiences, um, not of guns. I don't even care that much about guns, their tools. You know, I don't, people ask me all the time, like they'll message me, Oh, what do you think about this? Da, 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 gun with this kind of comp. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. Can you shoot it? Does it run? How do you run it? (laughs) Varg, I think we found a third co-host for the show. (laughs) There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of similarities there in philosophy. All the same things. Um, hey, Varg, one thing that you may not know that uh, me and Corinne, we took a class with Dima. She she was in the class with me with uh, with Center T. We did the AK class. Me and Corinne and this like super muscle dude were the only three in this class that completed every drill without taking a break. And I'm freaking proud of Which that. Which class was that? Because Whose class was that? The, the AK with Spetsna with Dima. Dima. Yeah, right. dude, that was the probably one of the most physically demanding classes I've ever taken. How much how much time can you spend holding that rifle on target? Can I please put my AK <laughs> down now? Oh my goodness. And then it's if you when you're exhausted like that and shaking, if you miss, every time you miss, there's a physical penalty. Yeah. I liked that about that class. Yeah. I liked that there were penalties for being sloppy, penalties for letting your uh, you know, your, your body just kind of go, Oh, whatever. I'm just so tired. I'll just yank the trigger. I'm, I'm too tired. I'll just yank the trigger. I'll just press the trigger before I'm ready. You know, there should be a penalty for that. That's a bad thing. You did a no, no. Okay. And I loved, um, yeah, we had a great, we had a great crew there. TJ was there too. Yeah. And awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself. Um, Ryan, Ryan, it was his name. Um, great guy. And actually, and that's the thing I learned something from Ryan that was not firearms related. You know, every time somebody on the line had to do push-ups, even if he had no penalties coming his way, he did push-ups. If he was partnered with somebody and they made a mistake and his partner had to had to had to have a penalty, he shared in the penalty. He was the first one on the range. The lot, you know, if it was hey break time, real quick, ran back to the water, loaded up real quick. And remember, we were joking. We were it was like a competition. You could be the first one back to the line. Like don't hold up. Well, the it had line. to be. Don't hold yeah. up the class. No, he was tough too, yeah. Ryan. Yeah, yeah he. Uh, I think he was looking for a workout. The subject matter of that class, I would have been bored if it wasn't for the extreme physical element in that class. Just, I mean, it, it was, you know, Russian manual of arms with an AK, very basic. But the way he conducted that training broke me off. Like every, the, the, the environment, the heat, the everything else. And uh, I loved it, man. I want to go do the next one because I want to get broke off like that again. 
But I don't know if you remember the post that I made shortly after that with both of us in the picture. There's something that yes. I talk about on this okay. show fairly, fairly often. Every, every day that I get to do something that makes me uncomfortable and I continue to fight through it and solve problems during that uncomfortableness, it gets me, I'm being more efficient. You know, I, I'm, be, I'm getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we were both uncomfortable. In, in problem solver class, you came with me, you were uncomfortable. I've seen people quit in the middle of drill. People stop doing things. They're like, hey, this is just too much. You know, and for somebody out there who's really training and obviously definitely yourself is thinking, okay, this is an awesome opportunity for me. This is where I'm really going to grow. I'm not only growing at the skills, but I'm, I'm growing mindset. I'm growing mentally. Mm-hmm. I'm growing that warrior spirit, uh, all those different things. So tell me, how, how have you, because, you know, you look at Corinne, you're like, what, 5'4", something like that. I uh, went 5'3". Five three, one hundred and fifteen pounds, maybe one hundred and ten. I don't sure. know. Not not many. Uh, not many pounds. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, no, actually, I'm 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 more. I'm like one thirty, but it's all muscle. So you would look at this pretty girl and think like, oh, um, you know, she's this nice, polite, always very poised and graceful. But you're freaking savage, man. Like like how. Was that something you had growing up, uh, you know, tomboyish or what? Is that something you developed mm. when you got into the gun thing and the, the martial arts thing? Like, how did how did you develop that, which is different than, than I think most people would expect from you, looking at you? Um, well, let's, I mean, when I was a kid, I, uh, I was pretty active. Um, I played sports, but, you know, this, the, 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 what you're describing, I guess, that ferocity, if I had some, comes from... Um, I think not anger, but, um, you know, if, if we talk about the development of my mindset from, okay, if you carry a gun, you're paranoid and weird and you're like really strange to, you know, now it's like, you know, if I, if I don't carry a gun, there's a real reason I got angry. I got angry when I see, when I saw things that should never have happened to beautiful, wonderful, innocent people. Um, I think the turning point in my life was the death of a young woman in our, the murder of a young woman in our community named Kelsey Smith, who was like 18 years old, beautiful, young high school student, kidnapped, tortured, murdered, left in a field for the coyotes. I, I was, and that was, that's three miles down my, down the road this way. That should never have happened. That's that not right. That was real evil in the world. That's when I realized there was real evil and I saw it. I mean, we had, I saw her, the surveillance videos of her being stalked out of the target of her getting pushed into her car. And I just, I had this rage. I wanted, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to rip him apart. And that's that emotional barrier that we, that kind of, we were talking about earlier is something's going to have to break. Something bad is going to have to happen, or you're going to have to have to have it affect you um, really, truly deeply to find that in you. Um, and everybody has it, especially women, because if you try to hurt our kid, we will, we will cut you. Like we will hurt you. Um, but you have to, you have to develop that. And then you have to have that switch. You have to train that portion to be turned on and off. So when I turn it off, I'm who I am, I guess right now, I try to be articulate. I try to be polite, measured in everything in my speech and my thought. Um, I don't always, you know, I keep my emotions under control, but I, so that's what I'm striving to do so that I can think clearly. Um, but when it's time to go, I, I'm thinking about how I wish I could save the people who I couldn't save, how I wish I was next to her, how I wish I was next to Mike, how I wish, you know, I think about what would happen 
if I, you know, if somebody tried to hurt Tyler, these are things that I can draw upon now. And that fuels, um, that fuels everything. And so when I'm in a training class, I'm, I'm challenging myself. I'm reminding myself who I am, who I'm capable of being, what my role is on this earth as a protector. And I'm taking that seriously. So that's, that's where, and then, and then when it's time not to be serious, then I'm having fun, you know, because you can't, it's not like, uh, you know, I'm dark all the time or anything. I'm not dark. I'm just, I'm, I'm a very happy person. I love life. I love people. I, uh, everything that I do is based out of love because I want to protect right the people that I love. That's it. Period. I say that all the time. Like, man, we don't train to, to hurt people and kill people. We <laughs> train out of love. Cause I want to stay here and provide for my family and protect my family. Continue to do that. That's my mission. Mark, she just described something that you and I talk about a lot offline. And I know that it's very important to you. Even though she's female, she pretty much just hit that violent gentleman concept. Yeah, that the mindset thing, you know, something I push really hard is balance. And it's, you know, I've lived on that savage side of life more so than most people ever will see. And for me to come back from that and still be able to be a compassionate father and a good person in general and have enough caring for people to want to help them. Everything I do in, in both of my businesses, both in the self-defense world and the strength and fitness world is based on helping people live better, stronger, safer lives. Right. And the ability to do that is driven by that compassion and that caring. Right. And striking that balance. Once you, if you have a traumatic event that pushes you over the edge into that through that emotional barrier and into that savage side of life, uh, coming back from that can be very difficult for some people. Um, and depending on how bad it is, you could be, you know, so bad that you have a bad experience, uh, legally you go to prison, like you go through all these terrible things, you could lose, you know, mobility, uh, or, you know, some part of your, physical function is affected forever by the fight you've been in. Like all these different things happen to people. But even if you've never experienced it yourself and you just see it like by proxy, like with, with her, with the girl that was attacked and killed in her town, um, coming back from that and being able to balance this out going forward is probably the most important point that I try to, and that's that violent gentleman thing that, this concept that I've been working on and talking to Daniel about, but it's really balancing out the savage with having a fullness and all the other aspects of life and still being a caring person and being able to be present with the people that you care about and be showing up in ways that makes you a great person while still able to step into that savage role on that and understand that side of life. And I think that is something that really requires its own kind of work. I agree. I think that um, what you're describing, people who have had violent experiences or who have had to act violently um, for, uh, let's say, a, a necessary reason, um, but have not learned or have not been prepared, have not prepared themselves how to deal with that cognitive dissonance of how can you do something destructive and violent that we have always associated with criminals and bad people. How can I, you know, justify being capable of that and then go home and read bedtime story to my kids 
and, you know, be in love with somebody and be a leader in my church or my community or, you know, they are not mutually exclusive. In fact, you, you need to have, if you love something, you need to know how to protect it in the way that you're able to do that. Not everybody needs to show up to your rifle course, Daniel. Not everybody needs to learn how to be an MMA fighter or, you know, have, have fighting skills, if you will. Um, to that degree, but everybody needs to be able to tap into that savage side and recognize that it is part of that Varg, as you described fullness um, to be fully present and, uh, and you can still be capable. I mean, you, you, you need to be capable of that violence, but also cultivate a generous spirit. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a problem. And, you know, sometimes for people that work in professions in military and law enforcement, and they deal with um, things that will jade jade them pretty quickly and pretty severely over years. And that becomes a, a serious issue of reaching that balance in those circumstances as well. So it might not be just one event. It could be, you know, a grinding lifestyle over several years that could just, you know, jade parts of you or most of you. And to the point to where you, you know, you come home, you're not that great of a person. People aren't looking forward to you coming home anymore. And uh, you're taking everything out on everybody else around you. And it manifests itself in different problems. So that's the extreme example of how it can go badly. Um, and if you get a handle on everything early and understand that both sides of this, if you delve into the self-defense world, understanding that savage side and being able to tap into that primal side of yourself is important but pulling yourself back over and maintaining balance is probably more important after that. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears just a little bit, because I don't want to take up your whole day, Corinne. Tell us a little bit about uh, Be Like Mike and some of the things you have going on since the, the loss of your husband. Uh, Varg, that was the perfect note to lead into this because you said um, you have to have that balance. You have to cultivate that, and I'm paraphrasing, that side of you that is loving, generous, that is fun and caring. That's what it's like to be like Mike. Um, So we um, have learned so much after Mike's death about what he was doing um, to give back to the community that he never told anybody about. Mike was, I talked a little bit about how passionate he was about training, about self-defense, about officer safety. He was one of the highest trained people in his department personally with his firearm. He was training at the range. He was taking classes. Um, You guys sometimes know you can't get cops to go to the range, even if you offer them free ammo and free training. It's almost impossible. I don't know why. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, there are some cops in competition and they're, they're really great, but usually that's not the norm. Um, So why is it so difficult to get cops on the range to train I don't know. Mike was the exception. He was highly trained. He was constantly putting in for training courses. He, um, he loved that. He took that responsibility seriously. And, um, and in the end, you know, I struggled just a little bit. Uh, Rick Staples, I mentioned earlier was the primary instructor at center fire shooting sports. When I was, uh, starting out as a baby instructor, I learned everything I know from him. So did Mike. Rick was Mike's academy and instructor. We had the same teacher, we knew the same stuff um, to a degree. I obviously wasn't a police officer, didn't have that experience. But um, as far as the tactics and handling, to a degree, I knew what he knew. And um, so we shared that. Uh, I took a class a couple weeks ago with Rick 
from, um, uh, or shoot, Rob Latham, great class. But I, I pulled Rick aside because we hadn't discussed what had happened yet. And I, I said, I, I'm, we talked, we both knew how, how skilled Mike was. And I said, um, all of this, all of this training, all of this, um, you know, he was, D, he was a DRE, a drug recognition, recognition expert. He was a sharpshooter, basically. I said, what did it buy him? What did it, what did it buy him? What did it get him in the end? And he said, he was able to kill his murderer. Sometimes, sometimes that's, that's what you get. And, um, and, and it, it was, it was really great. So he, he had this side to him that was the ultimate warrior. He would do anything to come home and he did everything that he could do. He's up here in my mind. He was, he was perfect. Then there's Mike, the community cop, um, the guy that I just found out two days ago. I did not know this every month. He was going to the Children's Mercy Hospital and he was reading stories and talking to the kids and he never even told me. He didn't tell his mother. He didn't tell me. He didn't tell anybody he was doing this. We got a call from the hospital and they asked, would you guys, would one of you like to take Mike's spot this month? And we're like, what are you talking about? You mean take Mike's spot? Oh, well, you know, every few weeks he would come in and sit down with the kids and read them stories. Would you like to take his time slot? Wow. We had no idea. And that's just one story. People have been writing us letters about interactions they had with him. He was a school resource officer. He he never just clocked in, clocked out. He was there to make a difference in young people's lives, in people's lives. He cared. He was the president of the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, and while he was doing that in his lodge, he created and was the president of the charitable arm, the Overland Park Police Officers Foundation because he wanted to help their officers and because he loved the charities that and the events that they put on, Shop with a Cop, Operation Rudolph. I mean, he was the cop that would go out and dance with the kids and be silly and 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 nurture these relationships with the community. He loved that. He made everybody feel special and he never did it for the glory. We're still finding out about the things that he did that he was doing for years and never even told his family. Be like Mike is being selfless, is looking around to see what you can do for other people. He would do anything for anybody. He was the guy that you could call. And if you were the kind of person like most of us are that are reluctant to ask for help, you knew that Mike was the person you could go to. He wasn't going to, he would help you. He'd never let anybody know if you needed help. You could trust him. He wasn't, he was a real friend. He was a real friend. And, um, and especially as in the role of a police officer, he showed the community what that uniform can do, what a person in that uniform um, should be like. Yep. He is the ultimate, ultimate example of a police officer and of a community member. And it's um, our community mourns for him. And I, I'm grateful for his example, especially at this time, because Mike was killed. Our community came together like I have never never seen before. And then a few weeks later, um, that's when, you know, uh, law enforcement um, started becoming attacked in this country. And it's getting gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. During that time where we were mourning Mike so strongly here in this community, I feel like our community was insulated from that mindset of bad cop, bad cop, bad cop, because that's not who Mike was. 
And that's who everybody knew cops in our, in our community to be is like Mike being like Mike. So I know I just rambled on, rambled on, but I don't care because it was about Mike, but that's what be like Mike means. He had this warrior mindset. He took it as serious as possible. He did everything right. And then there's the other side, which he did everything right in his role as a protector guardian and um, servant to the community as well. So we should all be a little bit more like Mike. Yeah. He not only represented the best in law enforcement, but the best in humanity. Yes. Without a doubt. Corinne, how can people see some of the things that, you know, to, to support some of the, the things that he was involved in and you're involved with now uh, in wake of his death. And also your daughter, I watched a video of her yesterday talking about, I forget the name of the organization, but the bears and the things they do for not just, you know, families of law enforcement who have been killed, but a lot of other things that children are going through. And I thought it was really awesome. And let me say before you answer that, when all this was going on, you know, it was down here in Dallas, me and my wife and, and son were there in spirit with you. And I was watching from afar and you and Tyler's poise and articulation, everything like what an example. I would have tears in my eyes just watching you guys talk. What a, you guys did a great job of setting an example out there as well, and that needs to be said. You know, there's some things out there. I'm sure there's some listeners out there who would be interested in, in what Tyler's doing with that organization and the things you have going on. Well, let's talk about Tyler first. Um, I'm really proud of her. She's she's the name of that foundation that she's partnered with is the Shadow Buddy Foundation, and um, you know, you, you you can go to the Shadow Shadow Buddy Foundation on Facebook on Instagram, learn a little bit about their background. But what she is doing with them is uh, help promoting their Courageous Crew uh, line, if you will, of first responder dolls that will help um, law enforcement uh, first responders in the community connect with kids in the community. Um, and so I highly encourage anybody who's listening go to Shadow Buddy Fa- Shadow Buddies Foundation. Um, oh, here's one. Uh, hi, Tyler. What? They're buddies, not dolls. Sorry. <laughs> They're not. This is not a doll. This is a buddy. And this is our police buddy. Um, so they got fire and EMS and, and other things like that. But um, so she's partnering with them. Please go to Shadow Buddies Foundation. Take a look at some of the um, of the way that Tyler talks about uh, that foundation and the Courageous Crew, particularly, and what that means. And then I love your question about what can people do to support and to continue what Mike was doing. This is what we can do. Not only, uh, you know, at home, you can be more like Mike by reaching out and seeing who needs help. Stop looking in, look out, look around you, help somebody, somebody today. You can do something for somebody today. Even if it's a phone call, even if it's, even if it's just a, Hey buddy, I was thinking about you. How you doing? I know what that feels like now when people direct that towards me. And I've been, I've been a bad friend. Like I have been a bad person, bad friend, bad daughter. I've been so self-centered. I only think about myself, not intentionally because I think I'm the center of the world. I just, this is my world. So I, I, I need to look out and see what I can do for other people. You can also, if you're interested, Mike loved Special Olympics. He single-handedly, okay, is the one that created the shoot for the gold competition every year, which is a three-gun competition that we held in DeSoto, Kansas to benefit Special Olympics Kansas. We raised tens of thousands of dollars for Special Olympics Kansas. He loved those athletes. He loved them. He loved the kids in the community. So shop with a cop um, every year, um, the back to school thing, Operation Rudolph, that was his favorite thing to do. And he made sure that Tyler came with him to experience uh, that with him. I want 
those organizations and those events to be funded for forever and to receive community support. I created two weeks ago, three, two, three weeks ago, the Mike Mosier Memorial Foundation through the Greater Kansas City Community Fund. Okay. The Mike Mosier Memorial Foundation will fund those charities that Mike loved the most forever. Okay. So if anybody is interested in donating to those charities, uh, through the Mike Mosier Memorial Fund, you can find that on the Greater Kansas City Community Fund link. He has his own page, a little description bio of Mike and um, and what we're trying to do with this foundation. Um, that All that money goes directly to that. It doesn't go to me. It doesn't go to the family. It, it goes to his charities. So it is a continuation, literally, of his work. And that is what he would want. Um, as far as myself and Tyler and my family, I'm, I'm, t- I'm uh, focusing personally on family. I'm focusing on what I just described, trying to turn myself around and uh, be outward focused. And it's one thing at a time. I think I texted a few people yesterday to see how they were doing. That was a big step for me, like unsolicited, like, hey, hey, how you doing? That's that's how bad of a person I I, I have been is that's a big deal to me to just text people out of the blue. Okay. If you'd have texted me, I'd have been like, what are you doing? I should be texting you right now. I I, see I'm bad. I'm the person that people text. I don't text people back. So, um, I'm going to be changing. I'm really going to be working on myself. Um, working on finding a lot of peace through nature and family. And one of those things that I'm going to be doing is I am going to be backing off of social media. I don't know, Dan, if you've probably noticed that I haven't been that active. I'm also much happier. So backing off of social media, I'm backing off of teaching, training, competition. I'm put. I'm pressing the pause button for probably I a few you years. About making posts in the past, if you remember. Whatever I did, I really hate that whole way. You can say I told you so without saying I told you so. <laughs> it kind of is aggravating. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, so, I've learned my lessons. Um, I'll learn them again. So, so you don't want to tell them where they can find you on social media. If you're, if you want to, but buddy, I'm, I'm leave it out then, but I am going to put links in the show notes to everything that you just mentioned there. Yes. Especially Uh, the Mike Moser Memorial Fund and the Shadow Buddies Foundation, please. Got it. Well guys, that was uh, episode number 172 with Corinne Moser. I am absolutely positive. This will not be the last time you hear from Corinne, one of my favorite people in the farms industry. And uh, I think it's pretty easy for you guys out there who listen to this episode to see why. Varg, any final thoughts? Uh, no, it was great to meet you, and uh, it was great to hear all the all the ideas and concepts that you're pushing. It sounds like we all have a lot in common with how we think about things, so it was very cool to hear that. Yeah, this has been really great. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time, guys. Anytime. Thank you, Corinne. All right, guys, that was it. Thanks for listening, and until next time, the Mag Life out. <laughs>